You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number 67. And we start with a little news from the Bay Area. Um, You might think San Francisco is better known these days for soaring rents and a flood of corporate cash from Silicon Valley, but recently the city's low-wage retail workers scored a legislative victory. Um, Although retail work has long been seen as an unstable, um, irregular, and uh, non-union low-wage job, um, not something that you can build a sustainable livelihood out of, Uh, retail workers in San Francisco uh, worked with community organizers and progressive lawmakers, and they pushed through the Retail Workers' Bill of Rights. It's landmark legislation that would basically guarantee a baseline of uh, labor rights and protections for retail workers. It was recently passed by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and is now set to be fully adopted. Um, It applies to uh, tens of thousands of workers who are working in chain stores with at least 20 branches uh, nationwide and which employ 20 or more people at their location. And they uh, they would basically provide um, you know set schedules from the outset of the job so that retail workers know exactly how long they're working and on what days, and it would uh, provide um, protections for people so that they do not get their schedules changed on them abruptly at the last minute, um, and they have some sort of stability and control over the hours that they work, which is a huge issue as we've discussed before and belabored um, this issue of unstable and erratic schedules. So it does go a long way uh, in ensuring that they have, um, you know, something close to a fair schedule, even if they're only working part-time. It also provides some enforcement measures so that um, there are actual penalties that an employer must pay if they do not adhere to the fair scheduling practices. Um, And it also adds some protections for so-called on-call workers who are always there to, um, you know, get their schedule changed at the drop of a hat, make sure that they um, uh, have some protection so that their specified shift is not suddenly changed to them. Um, this is pretty landmark legislation, and it might start a trend in cities across the country. So definitely keep your eye out for more such initiatives coming to a city near you. In less cheerful news, because I'm always full of less cheerful news for oh, you, sad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to tell you that the Supreme Court, in its eminent wisdom, has decided that your boss can require you to stand in line for a half hour or so in order to be searched on your way home from work to make sure you haven't been stealing, and he doesn't have to pay you for it. Yes, in a unanimous decision, yes, that means Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, too. The court ruled for Amazon warehouse subcontractors and therefore for Amazon and against the workers who were searched every day on their way out the door to make sure they're not stealing some of those gadgets and gizmos that they spend several hours packing into boxes to ship out to all of us. As former belabored co-host Josh Idelson tweeted, which defines what counts as work time, time spent creating value for the boss or time spent under the boss's control. The Supreme Court, it seems, thinks it's the former. Uh, Most people who have a boss would probably agree it is actually the latter. Uh, Josh also noted that Clarence Thomas dismissed the workers' argument that the company could easily have cut down their waiting time by hiring additional security inspectors. Thomas said that argument was for, quote, the bargaining table. But those workers don't have a union and thus don't get to sit at the bargaining table. Yet. 
that might, of course, wind up being their best option so that they no longer have to spend hours of their life standing in line waiting to be treated like, you know, common thieves, since the court doesn't seem to remember what it's like to have an employer who dictates how you spend your time. Historian and friend of the podcast Eric Loomis also pointed out that these kinds of security checks have a long history back to triangle shirtwaist workers and Gilded Age labor struggles. He writes, quote, reinforcing the ability of employers to force workers to do things like this without pay is a real step back towards the principles of the Gilded Age. That it is a nine to zero decision really reinforces how far the ideology of employer domination over workers has come in this country and how far we have to go to turn this nation back toward one where workers and their time and dignity is respected. Thanks, Amazon. Or thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Supreme Court. Right. And thank you, Integrity Staffing, which is actually, sadly enough, which is the the uh, one Integrity! That, yeah. Integrity right, Staffing. Right, right, right. Yeah. Which is, funnily enough, Amazon gets to wash its hands of this entire matter because oh. they technically weren't the ones being sued. So, yeah. anyway. Um, all right. Well, back to slightly more optimistic news, I guess. <laughs> um, over in Oregon. All of our happy news is coming from the West Coast. This, what does that this say? Yeah, no, it's, it's the weather. We got, um, some, we got some good East Coast news coming. It's true. It's true. Stay tuned. Um, so the uh, graduate teaching fellows at the University of Oregon um, just ended an unprecedented historic strike. For about a week, they were on strike. About 1,500 graduate teaching fellows um, and the Graduate Teaching Fellows Federation, they engaged in a work stoppage because they... Um, were uh, sort of locked in stalled contract negotiations with the administration over contract terms that kind of boiled down to a dispute over paid leave. Um, that was the one sticking point. And they recently um, had a breakthrough. They did not get everything they wanted. They had a compromise in the form of a hardship fund that would cover medical expenses. So now we're going to hear from John La Rochelle. He is um, a graduate teaching fellow in the Department of Philosophy. He was talking to me in the middle of the mediation session earlier this week, right before they reach their final deal. It would certainly be a good thing to have a hardship fund available um, for all graduate students as graduate students, and then also have uh, a dedicated paid leave policy for uh, graduate teachers uh, as workers on campus. You know, we do about um, a third of the instructional hours. That means we bring in a third of the tuition revenue, if you want to think about it that way. We do a lot of the grading and the direct one-on-one uh, interaction with students. Uh, we play a big part in, in keeping the university running and, and carrying out its educational mission. And we've been struggling through this entire process to just be recognized by the administration as workers making a contribution. Uh, they mm-hmm. continuously push us into that student category. Can you talk a little bit about how the administration has responded? Um, seems like there have been some pretty contentious moments um, over the past few days. Yeah, I mean, there's been a real shift in the, the attitude of the administration towards labor on campus, uh, starting with uh, bringing in outside counsel for the faculty uh, collective bargaining process uh, prior to ours, and then bringing in outside counsel for our negotiations as well. This is the first time, uh, as far as I know, in the history of the GTFF uh, that we've dealt with outside counsel uh, in negotiations rather than dealing with the university directly. Then, you know, as the process has gone on, we got to the point where, was, where we felt the need to go on strike uh, to meet our needs. And they put together what is clearly uh, a union-busting uh, response to the strike. So they have 
taken over classes, put uh, put deans in as instructors of record. They've given students the option of canceling exams and taking their grade as is uh, to save work. We've had uh, international students threatened regarding their visas. The entire process has been incredibly antagonistic, uh, and I think it demonstrates a real disconnect between where the administration is and, and where the rest of the university community is, because we have pretty much unanimous support from all of the major groups on campus. We have student government support. We have uh, other group, student groups behind us. We have faculty support both in the tenant and in the union. We have staff support. We have support from the, the broader community and, and beyond. Um, and the administration has, has been uh, more or less attacking labor on campus in spite of all of that solidarity and, and agreement that, that our, our requests are really reasonable ones, you know, to have basic second parental leave is, you know, it's a pretty basic worker right. Putting this in the context of what's going on nationally with um, academic labor organizing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where do you think the University of Oregon falls? I mean, do you feel like you are serving as a potential example or, or maybe... Um, there are some lessons learned from this that might be instructive for, um, for instance, the Columbia graduate students who just got a union. Um, you know, what's uh, what's the takeaway from this whole kerfuffle? I am firmly convinced that labor is at the front of making sure that we can maintain the heart and soul of education, uh, higher education especially in the U.S. I mean, we're facing a real uh, difficult moment right now, um, and the ability to organize and to collectively bargain and to represent ourselves as groups rather than individuals is vital to getting that done. And that was John LaRochelle from the University of Oregon Graduate Teaching Fellows Federation. And from the University of Oregon to Columbia University right here in New York, this week, 1,700 graduate workers at Columbia have signed union cards with the Graduate Workers of Columbia United Auto Workers and have asked the university administration to verify their support and recognize them as the union for these student workers. We are joined today by Lindsay Dayton and Olga Brudastova, organizers on the campaign and graduate workers at Columbia, to tell us about what's happening. So tell us a little bit about how you executed your organizing campaign. Uh, This is Lindsay Dayton. I'm a third-year PhD student in history. You know, very early on, we realized that we, before we could even start to think about what a graduate student union would do at Columbia, we needed to wrap our minds around the different experiences that graduate students were having in different departments, you know, what were international students dealing with. And so we started just doing our kind of personal networks, mapping them out physically on paper, and thinking about the folks that we knew in different departments, um, and then going and talking to them about what this would mean and asking them if they would be willing to organize in their departments when the time came. Yeah, uh, hey, I'm Olga Brodastva. I'm a civil engineering first-year PhD student. And I joined the movement in April, March of this year. And I think by that time, it was already a well-shaped, organized group of people. And they were just expanding their movement. Meeting, they were meeting new friends. They were meeting new people. And they were also collecting new grievances to make a clearer picture 
about the university. Yeah, and we were just doing departmental visits and, yeah, having personal conversations with virtually every student on campus. Mm -hmm. Did you find that you were drawing on past experiences at other campuses and, you know, sort of lessons learned from past drives that may or may not have been as successful? I think certainly we had the mentorship of organizers at Local 2110 of the UAW, And to that extent, we had that historical memory. And certainly the president of that local, Maida Rosenstein, she's marvelous, and she was there in the first campaign. But I think there was a lot of learning as we went and thinking about what kind of union we wanted at the end and trying to go forward as though we were already at that end. So what are the major contract demands that you are asking for with the administration? I don't think there are major contract demands other than having a contract itself yeah. and having a say in establishing it, mm-hmm. because everything we're going to discuss during the bargaining process will be voted for. I think also there are there are issues that span across departments. There are issues that are very specific to departments. And generally at Columbia, I think the biggest frustration is with a lack of transparency or any kind of democratic process around the work that we do. And I could say that for every single department on campus. Um, but yeah, we don't have a sort of issue-based campaign. Um, we're not pinning this down to one thing or another. I think my hope is that when we have the contract, it will be super thick and heavy so that we can deal with the very specific issues and these broader issues that kind of bring us together uh, at the same time. Yeah. So what are then some of the, the broader issues that are common? You've mentioned a couple, but are there some others? I think I could list grievances. I mean, there are issues with getting paid on time almost in every department, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't think is because Columbia is sitting on a pile of money somewhere um, or reinvesting the money that they're not paying us on time, but because they don't respect us as workers. Um, And I think, you know, there are a lot of those types of general things um, that that stem from not being thought of as workers, not being respected as people who contribute to the working life of the campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has the response been from um, you know your your students or other undergrads you've come across, and even you know I guess your faculty as well? I mean, what has the general mood been on campus in terms of responding to this campaign? Well, of course, our reactions of people are varying, but I think the majority, and it is clear from the cards that we've signed, and I guess it can be spread to all the community members on campus, that the majority of people support the movement and the campaign in general. And in most cases, especially in cases of faculty members and undergrads, we don't ask for their active support, uh, but we ask for neutrality because it's a matter of graduate students to choose the union, to choose whether they want the union and what they want to see is the union. Exactly. I think that there are some undergraduates who are more eager to be supportive, Mm -hmm. um, you know, than others, but certainly this is a very new, newly public campaign. So, you know, we don't know the sort of broad range of reactions But I think we want to continue to have this conversation with graduate students in a sort of common sense way without a bunch of talking heads sort of interfering with the conversation, um, without people becoming afraid for no reason at all. And yeah, I think it's 
been a really positive week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, it's sort of a kind of a game changer in some ways because um, unionizing of grad students on private university campuses is relatively new phenomenon. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the beautiful thing is that we've made connections with folks at other universities, not actually not just private universities, but I have friends at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who are going through a different kind of fight. And I think broadly, you know, this is a part of a larger change that we all hope to see in academia, which is for our, our work to be appreciated, for us to have, to be able to make a commitment to research and teaching without having to worry about whether or not we can have children, whether or not we can, you know, sustain this life without some sort of outside funding or without marrying somebody on Wall Street or, I mean, <laughs> these are real conversations. So I think um, certainly there are folks at other private universities that we've been in touch with who are organizing, who have active campaigns, um, who are watching this. And, you know, I don't think that this is an ideological movement at heart. I think that graduate students at Columbia will decide for themselves whether, you know, they want to set a precedent or or get a union contract and build from there. Um, but it's certainly a hopeful moment for all of us. Um. Yeah, I mean, we've heard this week that students at other private universities in New York are also in the middle of union campaigns. I'm wondering if uh, you have plans for any great across New York uh, grad student organizing. Well, someone from the Midwest, I'm going to check the New York thing because I think it's easier to organize in New York in Mm -hmm. some ways than it is elsewhere. But I don't think that it's limited to New York or should be, right? And certainly we're very excited to have colleagues at the new school who are making this move as well and who will be moving forward with us. Um, But the hope is that other unions elsewhere, even if it's not the UAW, will step up and support graduate workers at the University of Chicago or at Harvard um, and get behind some of these campaigns that are already moving on the ground um, to go forward with this and build a, a sort of stronger academic workforce. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I always think is interesting about grad student organizing is that it can be hard to get some students to understand themselves as, as workers, right? Especially when it's in the campus's interest for you to not perceive yourselves as workers. Well, yeah, I guess most of graduate students don't see themselves as workers, especially those who are not in labor studies and history, I guess, <laughs> most of us like, <laughs> in engineering school, yeah. And um, they needed a little bit of a conversation to make them think of themselves as workers, to make them see that their work is crucial for the university, for the whole existence of the system. But um, it didn't take a lot of time to change their mind on that subject. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I would say on the whole, there's been a lot less resistance than I expected at the start of this campaign. And I think it's the first question that a lot of people ask, but it doesn't seem to be the first most important or, you know, the biggest challenge. Yeah, not even a concern. Yeah. 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 But I also say, I think everybody kind of comes to this from a different place. And so the folks who are organizing around Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. for example, you know, who are graduate students, there's a lot of crossover between that and the union. 
Um, and although they're organizing autonomously, I think that there's a sense of, of thinking about Columbia and what it means to study and work at Columbia um, for different folks on campus that is, is kind of sort of becoming a part of this campaign. Do you want to talk about, like, you know, your future plans or any immediate plans? I know that you were talking about Black Lives Matter and some uh, other organizing that's going on on campus. Do you have other plans, you know, for either, you know, reaching out, forming coalitions and building out that way in the near future? I think that there are definitely things in the works, but, you know, we take our organizing week by week and sort of see where we're at, which has always worked for us. And so... I think right now, you know, we are preparing legal briefs to go to the National Labor Relations Board. Um, and, you know, there will certainly be a lot of people who are involved in Saturday's March. But, yeah, nothing. I think we have to wait until we have our meeting, our Thursday meetings tonight. And that was Lindsay Dayton and Olga Brudastova of the Graduate Workers of Columbia United Auto Workers. Congratulations to them. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. So for the past two weeks, as you probably know, there have been mass mobilizations under the banner of Black Lives Matter in response to police brutality and incidents of police impunity that are going on every day in communities across the country. Uh, We decided to get uh, the workers' perspective because a lot of the recent worker mobilizations that have been going on have also involved workers who are um, connecting what's going on in their workplaces to this broader movement for social and racial justice. For the Black Friday strikes, I spoke with Glova Scott. She had come out uh, with her fellow Walmart workers for um, the strike actions, and she also talked about the other issue that she was turning out for, which was uh, the response to Ferguson. And so here she is talking about how those two issues connect in her life. Are you are you afraid maybe of retaliation? Because I've heard reports about workers, you know, being silenced or having some like negative repercussions. Are you um, concerned about that at all? Yeah, I'm a little nervous about that. Um, you know, um, our Walmart makes uh, try to make sure that these things don't happen, but, you know, there's always risk involved, and I'm sure that it varies from store to store, too. But, you, you know, you're dealing with uh, with management who's not very, you know, they, they want to put out a public face, you know, of you know, giving lots of money for charity and being family orientated, but that's that's not what they're about. They're just about making profit. And like I said, their biggest source of profits is by not paying uh, their workers what they uh, a, a livable wage, not paying us the type of benefits that would allow us to uh, you know take care of our families in the best way possible, and so on. Mhm, mhm, yeah, so i I understand that you are also participating in um the Ferguson solidarity actions. you're participating in that, yeah, well, actually, today we had a we had a little marching rally to my store, h street store, and we took four and a half minutes, which was to symbolize the you know the four hours and minutes that um Michael Brown. Um, laid out on the streets as he was killed, uh, we had four and a half minutes of silence. And it really was total silence until 
Um, because, you know, there's a connection between, you know, social movements sticking out against peace brutality and the fight for better wages. You know, cops, you know, all around the country have do this. They, they, they kill folks, <laughs> you know, without any rep- repercussions whatsoever. They usually, you know, give you a slap on the wrist, you know, you get a light duty, you're behind the desk for a few, a few weeks and you're back out in the streets again. Um, and, uh, I mean, this has been happening for years, but something seems to be different now because I think that, you know, our standard of living has been pushed back so much that people are just now just, just getting more and more fed up. Uh, I mean, like, um, it used to be like standard that everybody would have at least eight holidays, maybe even, maybe even 11 holidays, but now it's been pushed back to, uh, if you're lucky, you got three holidays in which you don't have to, you know, you're guaranteed that you don't have to be working on those days. <laughs> That's a big step back in terms of our standard of living. Do you feel like the two come together really naturally in your mind, um, sort of resistance to what's happening in Ferguson and and this uh, other struggle for economic justice that you're looking for? Well, um, I think it's, like I said, there, there, there actually is more of a convergence between the two, you know, between, you know, social issues like this and economic issues. Uh, there are um, a number of unions, have actually gone to Ferguson to participate, uh, you know, join forces, the NACP youth and others who have been organizing protests there because everybody, everybody is, you know, saddened and angered by these, these things and want to join forces um, because the more you do that, uh, the more you have an impact on, on you know, trying to stop these kind of violations on on our rights. So that was Glova Scott talking about the way her strike at Walmart connected with the the Blackout Black Friday that was called for by organizers out of Ferguson and around the, the Black Lives Matter banner. It was a really interesting, for me, not entirely unexpected, but I think a lot of people didn't really understand why these, the why there would be a call for a boycott of Black Friday that mm-hmm. would go along with with the um, the other actions that were happening, and I think it was really the way it was done. I was I think I mentioned this briefly on last episode. I was really kind of impressed with the way um, these lines were have been drawn very naturally by um, particularly the Ferguson activists from the beginning. That mm-hmm. they've drawn the line between economic exploitation and real. Um, you know the violence that they face. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it goes, I goes. I've returned to this the, this phrase that I heard. Um, you know, uh, months back when people were talking about sort of economic violence, right? right and and yeah. what how what it means to be um, wholly disenfranchised in your community on every level, on this really systemic level. And and there are actually a number of protests, you know, directly in Ferguson, right? right. You know, with yeah. the Black Friday boycott. And yeah. and I think the connection between a boycott and right. a strike, right? Yeah. Um, this has been sort of a, a perennial kind of strand, you know, throughout the civil rights movement, right? Um, right. And so to see that sort of uh, revisited again in mm-hmm. this new context, I yeah. think is, is really interesting. And um, I just, you know, I, I, I was writing about um, sort of the, the connection between the two and um, 
Um, it reminded me of uh, the another anniversary that came up around this time was uh, Mario Savio's uh, Bodies on the Gears speech yeah. at University of Berkeley, and, and it just made me think about this this idea of of um, civil disobedience as a way of like total defiance, right? right. Just like active non-participation right. yeah. uh, on, on every level of the economy, whether yeah. that's as a consumer or as a worker. And so by withholding your labor and also withholding your spending, yeah. right, you are making a statement about, first of all, what society does in your absence, right? You're right. making your absence, your power felt through your absence, right. but you're also making a very proactive statement about right. what you can do right. within your realm. Yeah, and the fact that there were not only only boycotts, not only strikes, but that there were actions in these stores. Mm. There were active attempts to not only withhold the dollars of black people and of their allies, but to actually prevent the people who were willing to keep shopping anyway right. from being able to do that. Right. Um, and it's worth noting, there's. it's obviously very hard to trace this number particularly Exactly, but sales on Black Friday were down 11% this year from last year, and that's not, <laughs> the economy's been down for quite a while, right. Black Friday strikes have been right. going on for three years, but this Black Friday in particular, sales were down. And it's also connecting there, right, the, the disruptive protests. One of the forms we've heard those disruptive, we've seen those disruptive protests taking is the die-in, mm-hmm. right? And after the, um, not only the non-indictment of Darren Wilson in Ferguson, but the non-indictment of Daniel Pantaleo in New York, who killed Eric Garner, the protests only grew. And... I spoke to um, Carlos Robinson, who's a worker, a fast food worker in the St. Louis area, who was part of a die-in in a convenience store on the day of the broader fast food strikes across the country. So he spoke to me about how he took part in both of those movements. Um, so here is Carlos Robinson. Uh, the strike was very successful today. Yeah. Um, we had over 200 people come out. Um, we actually had a big, big, big protest downtown in Kenner Plaza. And we got to, you know, inform all of the fast food workers that's been working in the campaign and even the newer workers that's just coming out about, you know, how we've been protesting, standing up for the right to make a living wage, yeah. not a poverty wage. You know, we're just teaching each other that we can come together and have a voice in our community. And I feel today we did a very, very great job with that. Yeah. Um, was this, this wasn't your first strike? No, ma'am. When was the first time you went out on strike? The first time I went out on strike was, honestly, it had to be, a while back, because I've been doing this for a little while now. I've been doing this for about six or seven months now. So my first strike was probably been, I believe, it was here in St. Louis when um, we were just uh, actually starting to do strikes. So it was, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did today feel different? I'm, I know in St. Louis especially, there's a lot of connection with the um, the protests that have been going on around Mike Brown. Um, but yeah, how did today feel different? How does today feel different? Today yeah. felt different. Today felt different because we were doing it for Mike, the Mike Brown situation, and trying to show people how it's a significance between 
injustice in our workplaces and injustice in our communities. So that's how today made a bigger difference than what we normally do, because normally we are about Show Me 15, but we are willing and more than willing to give assistance to other situations of injustice. So it's a bigger difference when you're doing it for more than one reason, but for the same cause. Do you think more people came out because there have been so many protests recently? I believe people came out to show us support because that's what they want to do in their heart. People want to see change. The reason everybody comes out is because they know that just as well as we do, there's injustice in our communities and there's injustice in our fast food places, and we need to do something about it. That's why I believe more people came out. And, yes, more people did come out, but the reason for it is because they're willing to show their support because they know that one day they had to take a stand for what they believed in, and now they see we're doing it, and they believe in us, and it's a great thing for them to do that for us. So, yeah. Yeah. I saw that um, some people did a die-in at one of the, um, I think it was in one of the convenience stores. Were you, what was that like? That was that was pretty much of an image of what injustice has been done in our community to a young teenager is basically what that image was showing, how yeah. injustice can happen, and it could happen to anyone. It could have been any one child that that happened to. Yeah. Was there a particular reason that that, um, that store was chosen to do that? Well, well the thing is, man, we, we try to get workers to see that that is a positive way to have a job. You don't have to always be at your job unhappy, mm-hmm. negative, yeah. angry. So, yeah, we try to get every store. So that probably was a store that we just hadn't been going to, and we saw some potential workers that were being paid below poverty wages, and we figured that we maybe get put a voice into their job place and give them a way out, too, just like we're trying to find a way out. So what do you think are the next steps for, for you in St. Louis and for the fast, the Fight for 15 as a whole? The next step is $15 in a union. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and until we get that? Shut them down. And that was Carlos Robinson. He is a Burger King worker in St. Louis talking about the recent uh, civil disobedience action that he participated in as part of Black Lives Matter. I mean, we've seen the fast food worker strike um, in some ways has been sort of groundbreaking in a way in that it's sort of um, taken, you know, workplace organizing of non-union workers, of like unorganized workers and kind of taken it into the streets and taken it into different places that... Um, you know, we did not expect uh, to see, you know, strike actions, sort of broadening right. the meaning of what it means to strike. And so yeah. I think it's interesting just this, this like, using the, the workspace and also the, cons- the space of where you consume as, right. like, sites of protest, right. um, I think is really interesting. And, and traditionally, you know, the, the use of, like, you know, sort of more theatrical forms of protest mm-hmm. sort of lends itself to dismissal yeah. very easily. We were right. like, oh, those people, like, being right. so dramatic. But there's something very solemn about the way the protests of yeah. the last few weeks have taken place that I feel like kind of... Um, you know, does justice to the issue and also, like, just projects a, a sort of, um, you know, a, a sort of dignity and also, like, a yearning to have that dignity recognized yeah. that I think is really important um, to, yeah. to make visible at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the the people who coined the term Black Lives Matter and started organizing under it is Alicia Garza, who is an organizer with the Domestic Workers United. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, she talks explicitly about how Black Lives Matter means so much more than just 
please cops don't kill us. It right. is our lives matter. Our work matters. The the way we have to live matters. Mm-hmm. All of these things. Yeah. Um, and it's not all lives matter. For right. God's sake. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And what you were saying about the, the die-ins in particular, right? Before um, and last episode, we talked to a Walmart worker who had taken part in the sit-down strikes. And those, they began the sit-down strikes before before the die-ins started, before the decision had come down in Ferguson. And of course, the sit-down strikes evoke a very particular moment in labor history. Um, the die-ins sort of combine that um, tactic that we're going to occupy the space of our labor with evoking the actual violence that's done to black bodies in this country, right? right? In the and the name. timing of, you know, the four minutes, the, the, the you know, right. the, being the, yeah. the symbolic passage of time. Yeah, know. right. We've seen that. Right. And right now in New York, we're in the middle of labor and community groups have called 11 days of action for the 11 times that Eric Garner said, I can't breathe. And so, yeah, we're seeing really interesting uses of, of symbolism. Um, one other anniversary that happened in the last week was the anniversary of Rosa Parks sitting down in that bus yeah um and so yeah when we talk about boycotts when we talk about work you refuse to do i mean you could see what rosa parks did on that bus as a kind of sit-down strike right right? um and then combining that with the bus boycott right we're seeing these these historical things that become very you know sort of off in the distance to people becoming very very real in our lives right, right. now and the sit-ins of the civil rights movement right people right. are saying even back then right it's more than just the right to sit down in this restaurant right, right. we are actually occupying we're sort of making our movement unignorable right irresistible right. In, the, in the sense that you cannot ignore the fact that you know our, our presence is here right and and sometimes you know when you're struggling to have your rights recognized you know yeah. having your yeah. your very physical presence recognized is very yeah. important and it's really important that the labor movement recognized this as a class struggle, as a struggle against inequality, as a struggle against exploitation, which are all things that the labor movement should really be standing for. Yeah. Um, and we did see that. We saw Randy Weingarten from the American Federation of Teachers get arrested in with another group from Jews for Racial and Economic Justice um, as part of the Black Lives Matter protests. I'm hoping I will see more labor leaders joining her and others um, in the days to come. Yeah. Um, um, and the idea that, like, we've, we've talked so much in the past few months about, like, um, re- this sort of revisiting the strike, right, and, mm-hmm. and its role in history and how, like, our current, you know, the, the labor movement is so often sort of, like, forgotten about the, the, the act of protest and, like, the power of direct action and, yeah. like, the kind of, like, the physicality of actually, like, you know, putting your bodies on the gears, yeah. right, as Maria said, yeah. so... And on that note, this weekend, um, Saturday, December 13th, has been called as a National Day of Action for the Black Lives Matter movement. Here in New York, there is the Millions March um, starting at 2 p.m. on Saturday at Washington Square Park. Um, around the country, there will be actions, marches, protests. Um, you can check the Ferguson Response Tumblr. It's called it's fergusonresponse.tumblr.com, which has lists of all sorts of actions around the country um, Saturday and many it's been there have been actions pretty much every day and hopefully they will continue and now it's time for our our favorite portion of the show where we talk about the things that we've read recently that we wish we had written but did not 
So my pick for the week was, it's called The Real Reason Richer People Marry. Uh, and it was an op-ed in the New York Times by Andrew Cherlin. And uh, he writes um, about his research findings on marriage rates and what they tell us um, or don't tell us about uh, inequality and poverty and uh, the changing ways that we work and the way we structure our families and society. Um, he starts with this sort of rather simplistic premise that we've all heard about, um, you know, culture being connected to the decline of the American family and also um, poor economic outcomes and the so-called culture of poverty, right? Um, uh, again and again, we hear conservatives blaming culture for the reasons that certain groups do not fare well as others. This is often done in very racially coded language um, and is frankly pretty condescending about, uh, you know, judging people's behavior and somehow saying that if you're poor, it's a reflection on your bad moral characters. And if we all had the right values, somehow we'd have, um, you know, a culture that somehow magically allowed us to be self-sufficient and, um, and middle class. <laughs> so um, uh, Trillin actually sort of goes back to the data and he kind of interrogates this assumption um, this kind of cause and effect assumption that we have that uh, somehow the the breakdown of marriage says something about um, you know our our tendency to uh, our, our economic instability and vice versa. So um, he looks at marriage rates over time, and uh, he he starts with, you know in 2013 um, there is actually a significant marriage gap uh, between better off and uh, worse off people. Um, so among 20 to 49 year old men in 2013, 56 percent of professional managerial and technical workers were married compared with just 31% of service workers. And what that gap actually means is not so much that service workers are, you know, not hardworking and therefore they can't maintain families or that there's something wrong with their values, but rather inequality is the thing. And inequality is making it so that people do not feel safe enough or do not feel secure enough to start families to get married and, and to attach themselves to other human beings and build social networks in a way that allows them to um, build families in the traditional sense, the way that many middle class people have access to. He concludes by saying that college educated men and women are the privileged players in our transformed economy, um, and they are the upper echelon who have access to things like, you know, supposedly healthy married rates. So uh, rather than fixating on why people are or aren't getting married, we should be focusing on why our society is, instru is structured in a way that does not give them the choices that they need to be able to make to live happy, fulfilling lives and to build health healthy, fulfilling relationships with their people, no matter how their household is configured. And that comes down again to inequality. It is not the other way around. So the piece I wanted to call your attention to this week is Melissa Chadburn at Jezebel on The Secret Life of the American Airport Worker. Melissa is an incredible fiction writer and a labor organizer and used to write about labor for me when I was labor editor at Alternet. At, in this piece, she spent some time in airports, deliberately aiming to call people's attention to the people who serve us during the busiest travel time of the year. What she didn't intend to do, but captures beautifully anyway, is show us how dangerous these workers' jobs are when she winds up in an airport on lockdown because there's an active shooter in the terminal. She introduces us to immigrant workers who push wheelchairs for tips, tips that many customers don't realize they're waiting for or that they make only four fifty an hour because they are expected to get tips, to women who clean airports in unair-conditioned hangars who have to do their job 10 minutes at a time to avoid heat stroke, to baggage handlers and cleaners who face strict security, what if that lost bag is a bomb, but get little support and make minimum wage. 
She writes, quote, In the United States, nearly all airports are publicly owned. Their status as quasi-government entities makes them governed by a set of laws that makes it nearly impossible to organize a labor union amongst the workers, who even among themselves will agree that the passengers and their safety are everyone's primary interest. But what this means is that the people who carry our airports are the ones at the corners that get cut. You won't be surprised to know there is high turnaround in this employment sphere. Each year, the, la- the employers bid into a new contract with the airport. The lowest bidder wins, and labor is often the cost that gets cut. It's not a surprise that airport workers joined the fight for 15 last week. The airline industry has been struggling for a while, and as Melissa writes, in so many industries, the workers are the ones who get squeezed for more profits. It's also not a surprise to longtime belabored listeners that the airport town of SeaTac, Washington, was the first one in the nation to initiate a $15 an hour minimum wage, although a court has made that a little bit more complicated. Um, It's worth noting, though, that these airport workers deal with stressed out customers who are having a bad day, who hate traveling. I hate flying, certainly. Um, And they face much more pressure than we do from the intense security theater that everybody complains about. Um, There's an emotional component to this work that many people probably don't consider when you're rushing to your gate and complaining about conditions. So this holiday season, try to be nice to the service workers at your local airport. They're dealing with the same problems you are and probably doing it on minimum wage. And so that brings us to the end of episode 67. We hope we will see you in the streets this weekend and uh, have a good holiday season. Send us your tips, your stories. If you're organizing at your university campus, please let us know. Or at your local fast food restaurant. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Tweet at us at hashtag belabored. And uh, we'll be back after the holidays. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag Belabored.